afford anything but not everything. Every decision that you make is a trade-off. It carries an opportunity cost. And that doesn't just apply to your money. It applies to your time and your focus and your energy. It applies to anything in your life that's a limited resource. And so how do we harness these limited resources? How do we do so in a way that aligns with our priorities? And how do we carry this out day to day? Those are the questions that this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast. We are doing an interview with Mike Vardy, the productivityist. Now, a productivityist is a productivity enthusiast, and that's what Mike is. Since 2011, he has been writing about productivity. And in our upcoming conversation, we're going to discuss everything from morning routines to deciding whether or not to quit a project, knowing what to say yes to and what to say no to. We're going to discuss efficiency versus effectiveness. We're going to talk about decluttering, basically everything that is kind of batched in with what I always say in the beginning of these episodes, that you can do anything. You just can't do everything. And you especially can't do everything all at the same time. So, What's important and what's not? What opportunity costs are we willing to accept? And how do we make the best use of our ultimate limited resource, which is time and energy? We're going to get the answers to these questions right now. Here's Mike Vardy, the Productivityist. Hey, Mike. Hey, Paula. How you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. I'm just, uh, it's my deep work day as we're recording this. It's a real pleasure. And uh, I just have been kind of focusing on reading and writing today. Nice. And deep work, that concept comes from Cal Newport. I know he's a friend of yours. He's been a previous yep. guest on this podcast. Yep. It's it's one of those things where people who are familiar with my work, I theme my days. So uh, Friday, the theme is to focus on deep work. And what's interesting is it's evolved to not just the deep writing or deep creative work, but also deep relationships. Like I will take Friday mornings and go have coffee with people that I either really want to have engaging conversations with or just catching up with friends, having those deep, meaningful conversations where we just, you know, instead of just passing by and, and using social and, and liking stuff, we actually end up getting together and mm -hmm. having really good coffee or, or later in the day, maybe beer. But deep work for me is is more than just that idea of focusing on my core material. It's about depth across the board. Mm. So all, deep work almost has this connotation of lingering a little bit. Yeah, I would say lingering. And I mean, I need to know if I'm having it that day that I will wake up in the morning. Because when I wake up in the morning, I don't say, what am I going to do today? I wake up in the morning and I say, well, what day is it? Oh, it's Friday. For, what's Friday mean? Friday is deep work day. Okay, what deep work am I going to do today? And then what that allows me to do is I can look at my to-do list wherever it may be, and it uh, doesn't matter what app you use or whatever, paper plan or whatever. I can say, oh, well, here are all the things I've categorized as deep work. Some of it is, like you said, some of it is going to be stuff that lingers, like stuff that's going to be something that I want to continue and, and make continual progress on. And for me, that's really important is when I have those questions in the morning, what am I going to do today? My theme days, and any time I theme, it, it has to have an ability to work both personally and professionally. Because if it's just professionally, then that's really not work-life harmony. And if it's just personally, then you know it's also not work-life harmony. So for me, having those themed time periods are really, really helpful. And it helps me create boundaries. Like I, like I said, you are the only person that I'm having a, quote, meeting with today. I normally don't have meetings on Fridays. So if a coaching client wants to book time with me, they can't book time with me on a Friday. And they know this. So 
I think that for me, it allows me to do that work that is fruitful, whether it's deep work on a Friday or audio work on a Wednesday or optimization type stuff on a Monday. I just, I have these clear paths and I have funneled focus so that I can make all of these moments matter uh, every single day. I took a look at your, you've got this page, mikevardy.com slash now, where you outline what you do each day. And as you said, Monday is your optimization day and Tuesday is video day and Wednesday is audio day. I like that concept of theming each day of the week and deciding what tasks fit under those categories. And if you don't finish all of your video stuff on Tuesday, well, then it gets pushed to the following Tuesday. Right. How do you do this, however, when travel and other types of things like that interrupt it? Like you and I off camera before this interview, we were chatting about all of these conferences that we both go to. There's a lot of travel that happens midweek that Mm -hmm. throws everything off. If it only happened every once in a while, that's one thing. But you and I both travel enough that the irregular is regular. The abnormal is normal. So how do you handle that? So number one, you have to have those theme days. The categories have to be broad enough that things can fit in them that you might not necessarily at first blush think would fit in them. So for example, if Tuesday's my video day and I'm in San Antonio, which I was just, you know, not too long before this interview, what what video am I going to do? Well, I don't have my regular good camera with me because I'm on vacation and, and I don't have my studio because I'm staying at someone else's place. So what video tasks can I do? Well, writing video scripts is something I could do on my video day. Learning more about TubeBuddy would be something I could do on my video day. So I think it's important that if you're going to theme your time, whether you theme seven days of the week, one day of the week, just to see if you can get that going. I, I'm a real big believer in personalizing your process, not throwing it all in at once, but taking steps so that you can have marginal gains, not not just a, I'm going to try all seven days at once, and then you, it doesn't work for one day of the week, and you decide to throw the baby out with the bathwater because, oh, it didn't work for this Friday, so there's no way it could work for subsequent Fridays, or I can't get this to work on a Monday. How could I get it to work any other of the six days of the week? So for example, when I'm traveling and I'm doing audio work, I won't necessarily do interviews. Instead, I will plan podcast things. I will do Uh, little mini audio episodes that I give to my members, things like that. So I think it's important when you theme your time, whether you're doing it by day or whether you're doing what I call horizontal theming, which is, you know, from nine to two, Monday through like on Monday through Friday, maybe you're going to focus on creative work or whatever. It's important to have those categories be broad enough that enough stuff can fit in them so that you generally, A, oddly enough, don't run out of things to do, but also that it gives you enough focus to say, oh, well, this is a video task, but writing a script could also be a deep work task. So now I have a couple of options. And the other thing that people often say when we talk about theming their time is, what if you don't get the video work done that you need to get done on Tuesday? What if you run out of time? What if a meeting comes up? What if something, and I like to call those abstractions. Some people say, oh, what if you get distracted? Like distractions, you you can mitigate distractions over time. You can, you know, if you know there's a meeting every Tuesday, then you're probably not going to make that your deep work day because you know you have to go to a meeting every Tuesday. But if something pops up, and you're like, oh, you know, I didn't get all the video I needed to get done on this day, then you may not be able to put all the video tasks on to the next Tuesday. But you certainly won't move every single one of them to tomorrow or the next tomorrow. You'll prioritize. And that's what I do. So if I didn't get all of the video work done that I want to get done on a Tuesday, done that Tuesday, 
there may be two of them that I move to Friday, or I might do them the next day. But those are the exceptions to the rule. I mean, once you have boundaries, then you can explore how to bend them as needed. But you have to have them in place in the first place. So yeah, travel makes it tough. And there's an irregularity to my schedule, just like there's an irregularity to yours. And lots of people out there, you listening right now definitely would have that. But I think that once you have those parameters that are personal in place, and you could say, you know what, I qualify a video task as not just picking up a camera and shooting, but I also qualified as learning about Instagram video or, you know, writing a script or updating, um, maybe editing because you can edit on the go too, right? So there's lots of different things you can do to make this work. You just have to be willing to put in the time and energy and, and attention to make that happen. Okay. So something like choosing a theme for each day and having five themes for the five days of the week or seven mm -hmm. themes for the seven days of the week. That's a tactic, right? Yep. Zooming out and looking more broadly, more strategically, how do you decide what to work on and what not to? How do you decide what is, in the bigger picture, worth your energy and time or not? Oddly enough, theming still comes into play there mm -hmm. because I do what I call monthly themes as well. My monthly theme, I have a professional monthly theme and a personal monthly theme. So let's say... Uh, I start my year in September, so October is traditionally a month where I'm doing um, probably it'll be a, a specific project that I might have listed there for October. So that would be a professional one, and maybe for a personal one, maybe we're going to build. We're talking about building um, a new bedroom upstairs so that we can continue to Airbnb our basement. So that might be the project for October. And again, I'm paraphrasing here. The bottom line is if I'm looking at my daily themes and I'm saying, oh, today is optimization day as a, a Monday is an optimization day. Well, what am I going to optimize? Well, what's the monthly theme? Oh, the monthly theme is this project I'm working on. Okay, well, great. Let me do all the optimization tasks for this project. Or let me look at all of the, if it's a Friday, let me call the deep work tasks for this project. Oh, I've done all the deep work tasks for this project. Okay, well, what other deep work can I do? So I, I am funneling it and then the other thing I do is I, I – and Chris Brogan popularized this a long time ago, the three words. So I don't make New Year's resolutions. Instead, I choose words to represent my year. Those words help me decide what projects and what things I'm going to take on at various times of the year or, or whether I'm going to take them on at all. So this year, my words are redefine, rebuild, and reclaim. When I'm assessing a project, let's say someone comes to me and says, hey, we want you to work on this book. And I look at the book. Actually, this happened for a book a couple of years ago. And I looked at it. And at first glance, I was like, I'm going to do it. But then I said, hold on, Mike, you got to put it up against these three words to see if it makes sense. And when I did that against those three words, redefine, will it redefine who I want to be as a creator, as a professional, as a person, as a productivity strategist? Will it? No, it won't. Oh, oh really? Well, it's, it's not taking me down the path I want to go down long term. Okay, what about rebuild? Well, it, it would probably rebuild me a bit because a book deal is a book deal is a book deal. There will be people that would. But what about reclaim? Like, will it help me reclaim my position as an authority in the space? Will it help me reclaim my time so that I, I can focus on the things that will, will it allow or will it take away? No, it wouldn't. Oh, it didn't hit two of the three words. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. So I, I, I put these three words out there as kind of like a, a measuring stick against projects and, and initiatives that I'm going to choose to tackle. And what's funny is there's this one project I've wanted to work on for like three years. And I'm slowly like I've never put 100% into it because every time I put it up against the three words for this year, it's not the time to work on it. But 
because I know it's something I might want to do down the road, I don't throw it out. I keep it incubating in a sauna as a project that's just sitting there. But I already know that I've kind of assessed its value in the current day and age. And it's not something that is going to be moved forward with right now. But I don't want to lose sight of it either. So I think capturing is really important too, because then you can make educated decisions and make proper assessments as opposed to having an idea and just saying, oh, well, I'll I'll write it down later or I'll look at it later. You have to have a place where you can look at it later so you can assess it continuously. So essentially, you choose three words at the beginning of each year, and those three words act as values or barometers against which you make long-term decisions. Agreed. Yep. And then once you make those long-term decisions, then daily theming is the way that you execute those long-term decisions over the course of that year. Right. And every month has a theme too. So, you know, I know that August will always, and, and this is what happens, I think, over time, when you do something like this, you put this, these tactics and these strategies in place, like every August, I will tell you that it's my planning month mm-hmm. because I start my year in September. So it it has just naturally been the month where I plan. And that's the other thing is that monthly themes, it doesn't mean I only focus on those things during the month. It's just they are my emphasis. They are my compass. If I get stuck or I feel like I've lost my way, I have an anchor there. And that monthly theme, both personally and professionally, are anchors so that I know what to look at and say, oh, it's, you know, it's October. October is I'm going to be working on this project and we're going to look at home improvement stuff. And that's what we do. Hmm. So almost what I hear is like a tier of values where when you Mm -hmm. choose three words for the year, you're choosing your values for the year. And that's the yardstick. That's the barometer against which everything will be measured in a very at the 30,000 foot level. And then when you choose your word for the month, your theme for the month, you're choosing that value at the, say, 10,000 foot level. Mm-hmm. And then when you go daily, then that's when you get into the nitty gritty of, all right, how am I going to, th- what am I going to do on Tuesdays that reflect this? Or what am I, what am I going to do on Wednesdays that reflect this? Yep, absolutely. And then I have what I, again, those horizontal themes. And again, this methodology, these tactics I teach, which I call time crafting, there are what I call horizontal themes, which like, so for example, every day from nine to 10 a.m., I go into maintaining mode. So it's all the maintenance work that I need to do. I'm, I'm not a morning person, so it's all low hanging fruit kind of stuff, but the stuff that I need to do daily. So it's that hour of maintenance overrides whatever the daily theme is. So on Friday, even though it's deep work day from nine to 10 a.m., I'm doing maintenance. And then once 10 a.m. hits, all of a sudden my focus now goes back to deep work. And then from two to four is probably the best time for me to be creating based on my my body clock. If you've ever read the book, The Power of When by Dr. Michael Bruce, or even, I mean, Dan Pink's book as well, they talk about like knowing when it's the best time for you to be doing certain types of activity. And I, I've always been a night owl. I don't fight my body clock. And in the afternoon is when I'm best at making things. So I go into making mode from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., seven days a week. Now, what I make in that time is often determined by the daily theme or by the monthly theme. So if it's I'm making something between two and four on a Wednesday, you're probably going to see that I'm in a podcasting studio at that time, actually making the thing. And then in the evening, because I don't go to bed till about one, but from 10 to midnight, I go into what I call musing mode. So that's journaling. It's probably reading actual paper books, not the screen. All that kind of stuff, setting up the, the table for the next day. So just lighter things, 
as well as setting up, you know, what, what am I going to do the next day, et cetera, et cetera. So I have those there and they override the daily themes. And I also have what I call weekly sprints, which also override monthly themes. And those are for things that you can do quickly. Like, oh, I'm going to create this course and I can do it in a week. Okay, great. Well, that's my weekly sprint. It overrides whatever is the monthly, the monthly theme. And then when the week is done, the focus becomes the month again. So it's uh, what I'm trying to do is get rid of overchoice and remove decision fatigue because in a moment, <laughs> when, when you're presented with a task or something like that that came out of nowhere, you're going to have a tough time resisting it in some cases, especially if it's something you didn't plan or somebody gave you something or it's a new opportunity. It's shiny. It's new. Human beings are curious creatures that love to explore. What I like to do is, is have these parameters in place, these boundaries. So that way my decision is easier, right? I can say, oh, this is not the day for that. I don't do audio on Friday. I do it on Wednesday. I will deal with that on Wednesday. So it, it allows me to move forward better and ultimately faster. How do you define being efficient with your time versus being effective? You've talked a lot about execution. How do you know if what you're executing is effectively allowing you to reach those bigger goals? For me, the barometer that I use for that would be journal. I do review, but journaling, daily journaling keeps me understanding whether or not am I doing the right things daily? Am I on a video day? My journal entry will start with today was video day. Here are some of the videos that I did. Or some days it'll be, you know what? I didn't do any video today. What's wrong? Why didn't I do it? So there's a lot of self-reflection there. I'm a big believer in trying to find a balance between quantitative productivity and qualitative productivity, It's which is hard because the human mind loves quantitative stuff because that's why inbox zero is still a popular thing. Oh, I got my email inbox to zero. I had 333 emails and now I have zero. I'm like, well, what else did you do today? Did you work on that chapter of your book? Well, no, but I got my email inbox to zero. I had 333 emails. And you hear, I'm like, yeah, but what were those emails about? Like, were you just doing busy work for the sake of busy work? Were those the right emails to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for me, having the combination of looking at a to-do list and seeing how many items you can check off, I think is important. But like you said, that's not necessarily being productive. It's not even really necessarily being efficient because most people say, oh, well, efficient is is, is speed. No, no, it's not. It's speed. It's speed about the right things. Just like effectiveness is doing things well. you know. And I think those things come over time. The more you spend time having a process in place that allows you to build up your efficiency and your effectiveness. So for me, journaling is a huge part of that. And I think it's one of the least valued elements of uh, priority and, and time and attention management. I think people, if you took five minutes, which, and there's an, you know that there's, you and I both know there's an actual product out there called the five minute journal. <laughs> you could take five minutes of your day, which is I think 0.03% of your waking hours to write in a journal about how you felt about the day. Not just what you did, because the calendar will give you an idea and your to-do list will give you the details, but more about the emotional, like, is this working? Why is this project behind schedule? Or, you know what? I need to split my audio and video day up now because I'm going to be doing more video, which happened a while ago, because I wanted to do more stuff on YouTube. So, But I couldn't combine those on, on the same day. So then you know it's time to start making changes and, and tweaks and letting your system evolve. So I think journaling for me has been a big one. And, you know, when people say I don't have time to journal, I ask them if they're on Facebook. And they say, oh, yeah, of course I'm on Facebook. You know, 90% of the people are. And I said, well, if you're on Facebook and you're putting stuff on Facebook every day, you're journaling for the world. 
I think Facebook might be a better place if people put some of the stuff <laughs> in their journals instead of putting it on Facebook. The great thing about my journal is that no one will read it except me. And I'll be long gone by the time someone reads it and goes, oh, this is how Mike felt about that. You know, this is how he, he wasn't very pleased with himself that day or he felt great about himself that day. So I think that that's something that people should really consider, which is a bit unconventional, but I think it's incredibly important. Tell me about your morning routine. Do you have a specific morning routine? Yep. I'm a big believer in routines because I think that, you know, they're basically the bookends for your day, right? Honestly, my evening routine is more important than my morning routine, basically because I suck at mornings. <laughs> so I have to set myself up the night before. So they bleed into each other quite nicely. I, when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I go to the restroom and drink a bottle of water that's been left out. Um, you know, wait, my wait, wife is, is the bottle of water in the restroom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We leave it in the, I leave it in the restroom. Yeah. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah, I just have it there. Because then what happens is I just take it out of the fridge the night before, mm -hmm. put it on the countertop, and it's sealed, and I just drink it. The reason is one of the first things I want to do is hydrate. Secondly, and I used to just splash water on my face to wake me up, but we have like a rain shower now in the bathroom. So I just lean my head over <laughs> and just back of my neck. and Because sometimes I will have an earlier morning coaching call than I'd want to have. So I can get my hair done up the way I want it to. And those are the first two things I do. And then I go grab a Nutribullet shake, like a pre-prepared one out of the fridge. I put the water in it and make it. And then I brew my coffee, which is the AeroPress is already set up and ready to go. And then I read for about 25 minutes. I read um, Feedly and uh, my RSS feed. And then I read Flipboard. And then from then I go look at my to-do list app and I do the first of my important tasks for the day that are for that day's theme. And then the night before, that's when I basically set the table for all that. The water goes into the bathroom. The shake gets made in advance. The coffee gets put out. Because, I, again, I truly don't wake up until I start reading. Mm -hmm. I think everything else is just on autopilot to that point. Because, like you were talking about earlier about travel, I needed to have a routine that I knew would be portable. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed to make sure that it was something that no matter where I was, I could do it consistently so like the journaling, people are like, oh, well, I can't, I don't bring my journal with me on the road. I'm like, well, why not? Like, well, I'll just leave it at home. I'm like, well, find a way to bring it with you or find another way to journal. So if that's part of your evening or morning routine, it should be with you. Even when you're on vacation and it drove my wife nuts for the first couple of years when we'd go on vacation, I would journal every night, but then we'd go back. Like I actually went back and was able to look in the journal and see how I felt about different days of the vacation. There's value there, right? So I think you have to make your routines portable like anything else, once you make things too complicated, that's when they can start to break down. So mm -hmm. for me, it's very important that uh, when people start their routines, I say start with three things, three things in the morning, three things at night, make sure they're easily transferable, easily portable, and they're not going to take you a ton of energy to commit to consistently. And then if you want to add things or let's say in the summertime, your kids are not in school, so you have to change a little bit of it, but you still have those three core things you do in the morning and the three core things you do in the evening that will never will never move because they're they're woven into the fabric of what you need to do to make the day begin and end in such a way that you can actually get to sleep and not worry about the messy middle. I mean, that's that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. Make it portable and keep it simple. Absolutely. And I mean, people are like, well, why would you put out clothes the night before? I'm like, because I don't want to think about what I'm wearing. In fact, what's funny, Paul, is I actually have gone out of my way to buy T-shirts that are emblematic of my daily themes. It wasn't something I set out to do initially. So a weird one I just bought it not too long ago. I was in a store 
even though the TV show didn't do very well, they had an Inhumans shirt and the Black Bolt symbol was on it. And I can't expect anyone here to know who Black Bolt was, but Black Bolt is like the leader of the Inhumans and his voice was his weapon. Like if anything came out of his mouth, it could destroy things. So I'm like, that's the shirt I need for my audio day. <laughs> like, that's my audio day shirt. So it makes it even easier when I go to bed. I'm like, okay, oh, it's Wednesday. Time to get out the Black Bolt shirt. And oh, it's Thursday. Oh, that's training day. I'm going to wear the Teach Everything You Know uh, shirt. Oh, it's Friday. It's Deep Work Day. Oh, I've got the Stranger Things shirt that says mornings are made for coffee and contemplation. That's the shirt I'm going to wear that day. So I'm very deliberate about it. I think that that's to what we talk, you know, deep work. We talked about deep work. Being deliberate is Mm -hmm. so critical. And you can be far more deliberate if, like you said, if the things are simple. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. If you are a small business owner, you know that small business owners wear a lot of hats. And while some of these are great, others like the necessity to file taxes and run payroll, eh, it's not so great, but it's necessary. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so that you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. And you can get direct access to certified HR experts. Sounds like a pretty good way to kick off 2019 for your business, right? Here's the thing. Deadlines for the new year creep up earlier than you think. And you're going to want to get started now. So don't wait. Let Gusto make it easier on you. And as a bonus, Afford Anything listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll if you use my special sign-up link, which is gusto.com slash Paula. So try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash Paula. That's gusto.com slash Paula, G-U-S-T-O dot com slash Paula. Afford Anything is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with more than 20,000 classes in fields ranging from business to design to technology. Do you remember Rand Fishkin? He was a guest on the show in episode 145. He teaches a Skillshare class on introduction to SEO. Now, that class is only an hour and a half long. So in the amount of time that it takes you to watch a movie, like after dinner but before bed, you can learn SEO from Rand Fishkin. Their classes are all bite-sized. They're 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. So they're quick things that you can watch in one evening to learn about something related to your professional skill set or a side hustle like data science or mobile photography. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with this special offer. You can get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right, two months of unlimited access for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Paula. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash Paula, S-K-I-L-L, share.com slash Paula to start your two months now. Skillshare.com slash Paula. What's interesting to me about the fact that you have a shirt for each day is, again, it reduces that decision fatigue. You Mm -hmm. don't stand in the closet wondering, what am I going to wear today? And that might sound like something small, but there's a reason that Mark Zuckerberg wears exactly the same thing every day. Steve Jobs wore exactly the same thing every day. It's because the fewer decisions they have to make, the more their mental bandwidth is free to focus on bigger decisions 
or more important decisions. Right. I mean, and one of the things that I learned as I was building my business and building my methodology was I took from where I started, which was Costco. I worked at Costco for over a decade in the warehouses. And if you go to a Costco, they're built on this idea of simplicity, flexibility, and durability. You know, I mean, you go into a Costco and the stores are poured concrete. The shelves are not shelves at all. They're pallets and steel. But the other thing that I, I often bring up when it comes to choice and decision fatigue is that if you go into Costco to buy it, like, say, um, mustard or something mm -hmm. like that, you're going to be able to only buy French's mustard because that's the brand they sell. But not only that, you can either buy the big tub of French's mustard, the barbecue pack that has three of the squeezable bottles or the restaurant packets that restaurants buy. Those are your three choices. So either you buy one of those or you don't buy mustard at Costco. And what happens and what they've noticed is because they have far less items for sale, like wait, like oh, I think 4,000, just under, just under 4,000 SKUs compared to like a Walmart that has like 187,000, I think, or something like that. What happens is, is when you go into a Costco to buy very deliberate things, they've deliberately set out the store in a way that you walk out of there going, I only came in here for bread and milk and stuff, but I bought jeans and these books and a new electric toothbrush and a, please load the TV into the back of the truck like you, because you have not been worn down by overchoice. And that reminds me of Barry Schwartz, The Paradox of Choice. They mm -hmm. did the study in which if a person was presented with, I think it was somewhere around six jars, you, you go to a fair and you can buy jam, right? And if you're presented with six different flavors, say strawberry, grape, cherry, then with only six flavors, people are more likely to buy a jam. But mm -hmm. if they're presented with 28 flavors, they're so inundated by choice that they end up not buying anything. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's surprising that Baskin Robbins is doing this with 31 flavors. Like, no, I only want three. Give me three flavors. and that. But one of the books that I've been kind of making my way through is a book from 1971 by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock. And he talks about this idea over choice. And you read, if you were to read that book now, and you can get it, I think it's available on archive.org or Gutenberg. Like, it's now past that point where you can easily get it. You read that book, and it might as well be written today. <laughs> like this, the, the things that he goes, the, this life is moving really fast and all this stuff. And, and, and like, this is before computers were household appliances, right? And, and, and let alone things you can wear. So I think when you're looking at any kind of principles, any kind of tactics or strategies you're going to put in place, you need to make sure that they, you can, you've got to future proof them as much as possible. So again, routines, simple. That's why I love theming my days. It's very simple. I don't wake up in the morning and say, what am I going to do today? Because like you said, there are a myriad of choices. So what do I end up doing? I end up likely doing what someone else wants me to do. I check email first thing and email tells me what to do instead of me defining what I'm going to do by limiting my choice and saying, what day is it today? Well, hold on. No, no, it's, it's Friday. Okay. Well, what's Friday mean? Friday means deep work. Okay. What deep work am I going to do today? Well, it's the monthly theme. Oh, it's this project, the, the book. Okay. Well, you're going to do some deep work on the book. I went from 372 items on my to-do list down to 12 hmm. without having to really having to overthink it. We, we get out of our own way. <laughs> I think that that's what you just get out of your own way because the person that's sitting there right now in that moment is not nearly as wise at that point in time as the person who was there last time that said, man, if only I had something in place that would, you know, allow me to get going in the morning better or would keep me away from this analysis paralysis situation. Once you put those in place and then you have to continuously use it so that you can start to trust the process 
then you're going to get the outcomes you want rather than just say, I'm going to check off, you know, oh, my to do list, I checked off 43 things. So I was, you know, I did 43 things. Well, there's that quote by, uh, there's a quote that says, everyone's busy, so are the ants. But the question is, what are you busy about? And I think that that's the thing is if you have a, a process and a framework in place, it will give you the ability to make better choices as to how you're going to use your time. And oddly enough, frameworks, they foster freedom. You know, if you put those in place, you can afford to be more spontaneous. You can afford to say, you know what, on Fridays, I'm not going to have meetings because I don't want to. And I've got a framework that supports that. And so oddly enough, you have the freedom, which is sounds counterintuitive, but we all know that constraints help. It's just you need to put them in place and then consistently trust and work with them so that that way they hold true and they hold fast. There are a lot of ways to eliminate distractions that come from the outside world. But how do you eliminate distractions that come from inside of your own head? I'll give you an example. This actually happened today. I'm redesigning my website. My designer sent me an email saying, hey, we need this one particular photo from you. I probably could have dug this up within less than five minutes. Mm -hmm. But in the course of searching for that photo, I then started looking through all of my other photos and started reminiscing about this trip that I took. And I don't even know how much time passed by, probably an hour. I mean, I, I just, I went deep into the like reminiscing. It was very pleasant, but it was mm -hmm. this complete self-imposed distraction. Right. I come across this a lot and I think you will always have this happen. It's what happens when you go down this path of distraction to the point where it becomes a diversion. I would say that those are definitely more distractions than, say, a disruption. Like, and I talk about this a lot. I talk about, like, distractions and disruptions can lead to diversions. So you have to have something that can stop that before they become too diversionary. I think for me, the big thing is if that was to happen to me, you know, and I need this photo, I would say, okay. And then as soon as I found the photo, but I felt myself, and, and this is about being aware and oddly enough, slowing down, is to say, oh, I look at all these photos and, man, I really love these photos I would stop myself and go, okay, you know, I, I do want to take a look at these photos. I'm going to capture that. So put that down because your brain at that point in time is going, oh, these photos, I really want to look at them. You know, let's just do it. And the, the reason part of your brain is going, not right now, this is not the time to do it, but I definitely do want to get back to this. So I would capture it. And then, then for me, so in that situation, if, if it was something that was family oriented, let's say, let's say it was photos of me and the family, I would then say, I'll go and look at all the photos and maybe organize them if that's what I wanted to do. So then I have a choice. Well, I'll do that on my family day, which is Saturday, or maybe I'll do that on Monday. I think that that having that tactic mm -hmm. in place allows me to at least know I can get out of it. Now, that doesn't mean that you you do like so I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, every time something like that happens, you need to stop it because that we're human beings. But if you know that you have that tool in your toolbox of, hey, I'm going to capture this right now because it makes sense for me to do that because I want to do this later, but right now is not the time because today is deep work day, not family day, not optimization day, then at least my brain will then have the satisfaction of knowing that it's no longer just an emotional thing that's in my head, but I've written it down and I've got a way to bring it back to my attention later. I don't believe productivity is about efficiency and effectiveness on its face. I believe productivity is about intention and attention. What is your intention? 
how are you going to pay attention to that to get the outcome that you want? I think efficiency and effectiveness come when you constantly marry those two things together because they're a byproduct of it. So what happened for you and <laughs> a lot of people is my intention is to get this photo. Oh, I have another intention now. It's to look at these other photos, but that's not what should have my attention right now. I need to have something in place that will allow it to come back to my attention later. And that's what the capturing of it or writing it down or doing whatever you would do to put it into your to-do list app or your master plan or whatever that coupled with, you know, again, theming your time for me, that that's how that works. And that's how that helps. And again, it's just very simple. Mm, that makes sense. I use Wonderlist, So I could have gone into Wonderlist, and then I have a category in there that's personal. So then I could have made a note within that personal category of, hey, come back and go through these photos. Just look at them. Just enjoy them. When I'm working with clients, I kind of do that a little bit because when we talk about theming time, they don't think it can be done. And then I point it, I find I do a pattern break and, and tell them you're probably already doing it for housework. So you've probably got a household day. Therefore, it's something that you could already be doing. But there's other things. Like I say, you know, when do you normally think about putting up Christmas lights? And most people say, oh, well, when I see them come on sale on, on Amazon or I'm driving through the neighborhood and I see somebody put their Christmas lights up. I only have to think about it once. The first time that I thought about Christmas lights, I put it in my app. I use Todoist for my personal stuff. And I have a recurring task every November 25th to decide when I want to put up Christmas lights. It's not put up Christmas lights because I might not be able to do it that day. But that task in and of itself tells me, hey, I never have to think about Christmas lights again. I trust that Todoist will tell me when I told it to tell me that, hey, let's put up Christmas lights. Let's let's water the plants. Let's do. And most people say, why do you need to put that in there? Like, what's the point? And I said, because your mind was meant to be a factory and not a warehouse. And the more you stock it with the little crappy things, and I say crappy in that they just take up space that they don't need to be taking up. Instead, if you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to taking out the garbage. I mean, most people put that stuff on the calendar. And I, and, and, you know, as someone who followed GTD for a long time, getting things done, I'm the type of person that says, why would I put taking out garbage on a calendar? I, I don't have a date with garbage. That's a task. So I'll put it in my to-do list for the night before to take out the garbage. And what's happened, Paul, is people in my neighborhood see me put out the garbage the day before, and I am now their trigger. They probably don't have garbage day written down anymore because they see me put it out. And they're like, oh, it must be garbage day because Mike's putting it out. So tomorrow must be garbage day. I'm the harbinger of garbage and recycling in our neighborhood, I guess. You should put it out on a totally random day just to screw everybody up. <laughs> I probably could. I could get away with that. I bet you I could. Definitely, I definitely could get away with that. And that's total proof because it's they. I trust my system. And they know what I do, which helps. And so they trust me because I trust my system. So yeah, if I was to let them down, that would be kind of funny. Put it out on April Fool's Day. Could do that. Yeah. We'll return to the show in just a moment. Are you looking for a side hustle? Here's a really fun one. You can become a pet sitter on Rover. Rover lets pet sitters make their own schedules, set their own rates, and pick what kind of services they want to offer. So if you want to be a dog walker, you can be a dog walker. If you want to let dogs board overnight in your home when their owners are out of town, you can do that. So if you're looking for a side hustle, you can make extra money playing with dogs or 
feeding dogs, walking dogs. What you do is you set your own rates. It's generally in the range of 25 to 35 per night. And pet sitters can earn a grand a month or more. It's such a cool side hustle. So if you're interested, check out rover.com slash Paula to get started. You'll be snuggling dogs in no time. So become a pet sitter by visiting rover.com slash Paula. That's rover, R-O-V-E-R, dot com slash Paula, P-A-U-L-A. And from there, you can create your profile and get started watching dogs. Check out rover.com slash Paula to get started watching dogs today. Are you looking for a free checking account that pays a super high interest rate? Yeah, who's not? So check out Radius Hybrid Checking. Radius Hybrid Checking, as the name implies, is a hybrid between the flexibility of a checking account with the high interest earnings that you could get in a savings account. This is a checking account in which you get 1% APY on balances over $2,500 and 1.2% APY on balances of $100,000 and up. Now, that's a heck of a lot more than what you're going to find in the average checking account. Like That's a really good interest rate for a checking account. Also, there's no monthly maintenance fees. There are free ATMs worldwide, which means they'll reimburse your ATM fee that's charged by another bank. So you can use any ATM you want. Your first order of checks is free, and you can open an account online in five minutes or less. To open an account, go to radiusbank.com slash Paula. That's R-A-D-I-U-S bank.com slash Paula. Radiusbank.com slash Paula. As you're working on a project, how do you make the decision as to whether or not you should quit a project? Because I put projects up against those three words at the start of the year, Mm -hmm. I normally don't get to the point where it's like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore, or I misjudged it. But it helps me say no a lot more because of the fact that I've got these monthly themes and these, these weekly sprints already in place. If someone was to ask me to do something, I normally am able to assess it up front and very rarely, in fact, I can't even think of one where I looked at a project while I was working on it after it had passed that litmus test of the three words and said, you know what, I made a mistake, I shouldn't be doing this. If anything, most of them are self deadline oriented anyways, like I've set the deadline. I learned a while ago from Derek Sivers to keep certain things, you got to keep some of your goals to yourself, Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than putting it out there and saying, hey, everyone, I'm going to build this thing. So I've gotten better at that, because that creates a whole other set of expectations. So I, I would say that when that happens, I'll let you know, but I, I can't remember the last time where I was working on a project and you know what, this is a mistake. I shouldn't be working on this or it shouldn't be, I shouldn't complete this. I should just kill this. If anything, more often than not, I've just paused things or, or slowed down the progress, but I haven't necessarily said, okay, we're just now back to the drawing board. We're tearing this up. We're ending it. Mm. How do you make the choice between time and money? I mean, when do you know And there are a lot of various interpretations to this question, but the most obvious one is when do you know that you should do something yourself versus outsource it? Or when do you know if you have a new opportunity that comes your way, if the compensation for that opportunity is worth the additional time commitment? What framework do you have for making those decisions? So I'll preface this by saying that I've often been very terrible with pricing my own services. This probably goes back to me 
doing comedy for nachos and beer back in the day. So when it comes to outsourcing, I will look at tasks and I kind of hold them up against like what I believe my rate per hour should be. And I say, is this something that I should be, should I, I should be doing myself. And if it is below my hourly rate, then I ask myself, okay, is it something that I'm going to have to spend a lot of time training someone to do just once, or is it something that I'm going to want to do regularly, like podcast show notes or something like that? If I'm going to do it more than once, then what I'll do is I will do the first time I'll do it myself, but I will do it as if I'm training someone. So I'll do a screencast. I think it's that whole measure, measure twice, cut once kind of mentality when I'm looking at delegating. If I know that it's something that we're going to do regularly and I don't want to be the one doing it or I don't feel that I should be the one doing it and, you know, outsourcing, you can find ways to do it on the cheap if you want. Um, There's lots of services out there. Chris Ducker taught me that a long time ago. Oddly enough, he's also the one that told me that I should price better. Um, (laughs) But that's what I would do is I would say, okay, I'm going to make a video that way I've got it. And I've created a little library. So that way, when I bring on someone either that permanently on staff, or I'm going to just outsource it to someone, I've already got it ready to go. In terms of deciding whether or not projects or tasks are worth doing based on how much I'm going to earn, that's been a struggle for a long time. But Over the years, I've gotten better at saying, okay, this is what my products are worth. This is what my services are worth. And I just, I, I've gotten better at figuring out what my time is worth, both building something and being present with someone in the call. With regard to deciding whether or not a new project is worth your time, whether it's compensation is high enough that it's worth your time, what framework do you use? What thinking or decision-making framework do you use that anyone who's listening could apply to their own life, regardless of what industry they're in? So when I'm looking at something, first off, it's got to be something that I'm going to enjoy doing. The money is secondary to me at any given time. So a speaking gig would be an example or something like it. I love speaking. So that's going to have an effect as to whether or not I'm going to want more money or not for it. So I, I look at, is this something that I'm going to enjoy doing? If it is, then I'm already interested. So that's something that I, that it's going to be something that I have to definitely put a measuring stick against is I'm going to enjoy doing this. Great. Okay. How much time is it going to take? It's going to take X period. Is it going to pull me away from other things that I'm working on? If it's going to take away from something else I'm working on that will have a longer term impact, then that already lowers it, the ability for me to say, yes, I'm going to do it. And then finally, Is it going to be something that is going to be beneficial to me in the long term, thinking three, five years down the road because the internet is permanent or what I'm building is permanent versus is it just a quick short win and that's it? Then that tells me, hey, I may love doing this, but it's going to take me away from the bigger picture stuff. And also it's going to take me, uh, it may not be the thing that I want to be represented in three, four, five years down the road. So I'm going to say no. And I do say no more often than yes these days, just because time's at a premium and I've got lots of things I'm working on for myself. So there is some randomness to some of this, but largely those three elements are the things I look at when someone presents me with a project because I don't want to have too many things to think about when I'm doing it. Well, those are all the questions that I had for you. Is there anything that you'd like to emphasize? Any final takeaways? No, I think that, that, by the way, this is great. I enjoyed my time immensely uh, hanging out with you. I think the big thing that if people are going to try to take on any kind of process, the biggest 
thing that you should do when you're starting with is start small. I've worked with people who have tried to take on massive system overhauls and, oh, I'm going to use Agile now. We've never used it before. Like they try to do too much. And then what happens is it all falls apart. So if you're thinking, hey, you know what? I like this idea of theming my days. Theme one day. Start with one. And then maybe add a second. You don't have to theme all 12 months of the year. Or if you're going to journal, give yourself a, a five-minute timer to journal. Maybe have a template so that way it's not so freeform. But create an environment that's going to allow you to grow and craft your time the way you want to over time. Don't just try to do it all at once. Because when you try to do it all at once – you are setting yourself up for problems, especially because as you set up a new process or system, the rest of the things that are going on around you, they don't stop. So start small and build from there. Nice. Well, thank you so much. Where can people find you if they'd like to learn more? You can find me at productivityist.com. That's the word productivity and then IST at the end.com or at MikeVardy.com. Everything is kind of there. And then so social media, the productivityist or Mike Vardy all over the place. Thanks, Mike. What are some of the core takeaways that we got from this conversation? Here are nine. Chief takeaway number one, eliminate decision fatigue. The more decisions that you have to make, especially minor decisions about things that don't matter, by eliminating decisions, you're able to free up your energy to focus on the few things that truly move the needle. What I'm trying to do is get rid of overchoice and remove decision fatigue because in a moment <laughs> when you're presented with a task or something like that that came out of nowhere, you're going to have a tough time resisting it in some cases, especially if it's something you didn't plan or somebody gave you something or it's a new opportunity. It's shiny. It's new. Human beings are curious creatures that love to explore. What I like to do is, is have these parameters in place, these boundaries, so that way my decision is easier. The purpose of structuring your time, it isn't just so that you can maximize your hours. It's also so that you can minimize the amount of stuff that your brain has to do. It's so that you can minimize the amount of just making endless decisions. Do you ever go out to a restaurant with a friend and you have that like, where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. And it just it takes so long and it's so energy draining. And sometimes it's just better if you have a friend who says, all right, you know what? Our options are A, B or C. Pick one. You don't have to go through an endless array of options and you don't have to feel the weariness that comes from decision fatigue. And that is, in a sense, the reason that a person would plan their days and weeks and months with the level of detail that Mike does. The point of a structure like that isn't because it's best to do audio on a Tuesday. The point of a structure like that is to just eliminate thinking about what you're going to do that day. And so that's core takeaway number one. Design your life and design your days in ways that eliminate the amount of small decisions you need to make. Core takeaway number two. It's not about doing the most things. It's about doing the right things. That's why inbox zero is still a popular thing. Oh, I got my email inbox to zero. I had 333 emails and now I have zero. I'm like, well, what else did you do today? Did you work on that chapter of your book? Well, no, but I got my email inbox to zero. I had 333 emails. And you hear me like, yeah, but what were those emails about? Like, were you just doing busy work for the sake of busy work? Were those the right emails to be doing, et cetera, et cetera? So I think for me, having the combination of 
looking at a to-do list and seeing how many items you can check off, I think is important. But like you said, that's not necessarily being productive. It's not even really necessarily being efficient because most people say, oh, well, efficient is, is, is speed. Nah, no, it's not. It's speed. It's speed about the right things. There is a famous quote by Steve Jobs in which he says that he is as proud of the things that he hasn't done as he is of the things he's done. Being productive and being effective is not about busy work. It's not about doing everything. It's not even about doing a lot more. Less is more. And sometimes the way to be productive, the way to be effective, is to be choosier about the few things that you do. Do fewer things, but do those few things well. Core takeaway number three. In order to decide what's worth your time and energy and what's not, try journaling. When people say, I don't have time to journal, I ask them if they're on Facebook. And they say, oh, yeah, of course I'm on Facebook. And I said, well, if you're on Facebook and you're putting stuff on Facebook every day, you're journaling for the world. I think Facebook might be a better place if people put some of the stuff <laughs> in their journals instead of putting it on Facebook. I said, so you do have time. This is unique because it's a key takeaway that's also a tactic. I don't often include actionable tactics within these key takeaways. I like to focus them on higher level concepts. But journaling is a tactic that I think can get you to a space in which you're able to think broadly about high-level concepts in your own life. Journaling is essentially the physical act of reflecting. Writing is a physical manifestation of thinking. And so by giving yourself a practice of journaling just for five minutes a day, you are actually engaging in the process of thinking, the practice of thinking. And someone once gave me the advice, I thought this was brilliant. Notice what you journal about. If you are simply summarizing or recapping an experience, if you're writing about external events, then you're documenting, but you're not introspecting. If, on the other hand, you're journaling about your thoughts and emotions as they relate to whatever is happening in your life— then you're actually journaling from a place of reflection, from a place of introspection. So that's the other component of this. When you journal, do so in a way that is reflective rather than in a way that is documentarian. Key takeaway number four. In order to create good routines, start small. When people start their routines, I say start with three things. Three things in the morning, three things at night. Make sure they're easily transferable, easily portable, and they're not going to take you a ton of energy to commit to consistently. And then if you want to add things or let's say in the summertime, your kids are not in school, so you have to change a little bit of it, but you still have those three core things you do in the morning and the three core things you do in the evening that will never move because they're they're woven into the fabric of what you need to do to make the day begin and end in such a way that you can actually get to sleep and not worry about the messy middle. Your morning and evening routine do not need to be massive productions. Try doing just three things consistently every morning and three things consistently every evening. And those things can be tiny. It can be as simple as drinking a glass of water or flossing. Leo Babuda, the founder of Zen Habits, famously says, you know what, if you want to start a flossing habit, start by flossing one tooth, like one gap between your teeth. Just do that one. And it might seem silly to take out the dental floss and floss one tooth and then put it down. But that will get you into the habit of it. If you want to get into a habit of doing push-ups, get on the ground and do one push-up. 
and it might seem silly to then get back up, but that's how you get into that habit. So that's the takeaway here is if you want to develop a habit, pick something that's portable so that you can bring it with you wherever you go, including while you're on the road, and pick just a few small things. Improve your life in 1% increments and continue doing that consistently. The tortoise and the hare. Core takeaway number five, avoid getting bogged down by choices. I worked at Costco for over a decade in the warehouses. If you go to a Costco, they're built on this idea of simplicity, flexibility, and durability. You know, I mean, you go into a Costco and the stores are poor concrete. The shelves are not shelves at all. They're pallets and steel. But the other thing that I I often bring up when it comes to choice and decision fatigue is that if you go into Costco to buy mustard, you're going to be able to only buy French's mustard because that's the brand they sell. Not only that, you can either buy the big tub of French's mustard, the barbecue pack that has three of the squeezable bottles, or the restaurant packets that restaurants buy. Those are your three choices. So either you buy one of those or you don't buy mustard at Costco. And what happens and what they've noticed is because they have far less items for sale, like wait, like I think 4,000, just under just under 4,000 SKUs compared to like a Walmart that has like 187,000, I think, or something like that. What happens is, is when you go into a Costco to buy very deliberate things, they've deliberately set out the store in a way that you walk out of there going, I only came in here for bread and milk and stuff, but I bought jeans and these books and a new electric toothbrush and please load the TV into the back of the truck like you, because you have not been worn down by overchoice. When we are presented with too many choices, we often do nothing. That's human nature. And so the way out of that is to artificially limit our choices. Pick something that works, something that's good enough, and do it and then leave good enough alone and move on. Don't drive yourself crazy trying to study the best investments. I don't think there is a such thing as best. Just pick something that has a reasonable likelihood of being good based on historical data. Call it good enough and move on and don't worry about endlessly tweaking it. There is this practice, particularly among frugality enthusiasts, there's this practice of constant optimizing, over-optimizing, where the ethos is, all right, how can we keep tweaking it and keep tweaking and keep tweaking and make this even better and better and which, you know, in, in the frugality world is cheaper and cheaper. Man, at a certain point, you just got to stop. Leave good enough alone and move on. There's a great quote by Tim Ferriss where he says, get in the habit of letting small bad things happen so that you can leave space for the few big things. It's okay to pay a late fee for an overdue library book. It's not the end of the world. It's okay to order something on Amazon Prime, even if it's a dollar cheaper at the store. Because the time and energy and decision fatigue that you save by just going to Amazon Prime and placing that order, rather than shopping around at four different places, that is valuable. That's worth something. So eliminate your choices. Pick a couple of options that are good enough and just go with it. And that's how you'll be able to leave space in your life for starting a new project, starting a side hustle, or spending more time with your family and friends, which is something that you cannot outsource. You cannot pay people to go hang out with your friends on your behalf. Spend your time doing those things because those are the things that matter. Key takeaway number six, create boundaries so that you can know where they are, but don't stick to them too closely. 
I mean, once you have boundaries, then you can explore how to bend them as needed. But you have to have them in place in the first place. You know how they say rules are meant to be broken? Same thing with these boundaries. Create these boundaries just so you have a sense of them, but don't be afraid to break them or bend them as needed. Key takeaway number seven. Instead of setting New Year's resolutions, create three words that theme your year. So I don't make New Year's resolutions. Instead, I choose words to represent my year. Those words help me decide what projects and what things I'm going to take on at various times of the year or whether I'm going to take them on at all. By virtue of creating three words that will be the dominant theme of the year, fundamentally what you're doing is you are participating in an exercise around identifying your values for the year. A New Year's resolution is often a very specific goal, but a word that is the theme of your year is a value, a direction, a guidepost. And you can use that as a barometer for any choice that you make throughout the year. So that is key takeaway number seven. Rather than setting New Year's resolutions, or maybe in addition to setting New Year's resolutions, whichever you prefer, also choose a few words that'll be your theme for the year, because those are your values that you want to move deeper into throughout the year. Key takeaway number eight. The tactics that he outlined are really meant to be a compass. And that's the other thing is that monthly themes, it doesn't mean I only focus on those things during the month. It's just they are my emphasis. They are my compass. If I get stuck or I feel like I've lost my way, I have an anchor there. The purpose of monthly themes or even daily themes is not tactical task management it's strategic decision-making. And one idea that kept arising over and over throughout our interview is that all of these productivity and time management tactics that he was talking about, those were really only tactics at the surface level. But what was going on underneath them, the, the why behind the what, is that all of these are tools that facilitate strategic decision-making. And that leads perfectly to our ninth and final takeaway. Productivity is not about getting things done. It's about aligning your attention with your intentions. I don't believe productivity is about efficiency and effectiveness on its face. I believe productivity is about intention and attention. What is your intention? How are you going to pay attention to that to get the outcome that you want? I think efficiency and effectiveness come when you constantly marry those two things together because they're a byproduct of it. Productivity is not about time management or task management. It's about making sure that your energy and effort align with your values and your priorities. Those are nine takeaways from this conversation. Now, I want to say a huge thank you to everybody who left us a rating or a review in iTunes or in your other favorite podcast player. And I want to give a shout out to this awesome one right here. The title is 27,000 Total Pay Bump in 15 Months. And it says... Just want to thank you for empowering me to go for what I'm worth. Last year, I received a $12,000 pay bump. I received that raise because my previous employer caught wind that I was looking, and I have since left that employer and got the same pay with my current employer. Then last month, I received a $15,000 bump with my current employer due to a promotion after being with the company for 13 months. Now, the great news I received from my internal customers is even means more 
now with the pay bumps. So I migrated to the U.S. 13 years ago with $100 in my pocket, and now I'm making $80,000. I'm still in disbelief. I feel so blessed. Please know that this money is going to good use. I bought my mom a duplex that's going to get paid off next year. And then after that, I would like to start getting rental properties. Thank you again so much for all you do. Wow, that's incredible. Huge congratulations to this person who left this review. And the congratulations goes to you. You did this. This is your achievement. Huge, huge, huge congratulations to you. And thank you for sharing that with me and with this whole community here. If you enjoyed this show, please leave us a review in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And while you're there, hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss any future shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast. I'll catch you next week.